Psalm 48 verse 2 tells us, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Beautiful in elevation. We've talked about before that Jerusalem is an elevated city. It sits some 2,500 feet above sea level. And if you were to look at a topographical map, you'd see a series of rugged mountains that make up the city, or that the city is built right on top of. To the west is Mount Zion, the highest peak that makes up this area called Jerusalem. To the north is a smaller but noticeable Mount Scopus. In fact, it's one of my favorite outlooks in Jerusalem. When we first come into the city, as we, as we see it on the Israel tour, we go to Mount Scopus, we pause there, get out of the bus, and just look out over the city from the north, and it's an amazing, breathtaking view. To the east is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is actually three smaller mountains, but kind of in a range together, that make up what's called the Mount of Olives. But running right up the middle of Jerusalem is another mountain. It's called a mountain, it's really more of a ridge, and that's Mount Moriah on which sits the Temple Mount. Truly, Jerusalem is a city surrounded by mountains. And David wrote in Psalm 125, verse 2, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time and forever. Now, taking that literally, if you think about the mountains of Jerusalem to the west, to the east, to the north, and running right up the middle, they're a picture of how the Lord surrounds His people. That He's to the west, the east, the north, the south, and He runs right up the middle of our hearts. We are completely surrounded by our Father, by His Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Now, I begin by talking about Jerusalem because David had a great love for Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem, making it his home. And it's here in Jerusalem, the city of the great king, that David gathered all the leaders of Israel. And he commends his son Solomon to be their ruler. We read about that in chapter 22. And now as we pick up in chapter 23... He has commended Solomon and he begins to commend the leaders to help Solomon. He begins to command the final expression of his heart. And that is the building of the temple. And so from chapters 23 through 29, and we're going to cover them all tonight, word by word. No, we won't. We'll cover all the chapters. We're going to skip a lot of names that you can go back and look at if you'd like to. But to continue in this as a whole, as David commends and commands, we're going to look at these things tonight. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 23. Now when David reached old age, he made his son Solomon king over all Israel. And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Now what's interesting here, if you compare this to First uh, and Second Samuel, the chronicler does not concern himself with the political intrigue surrounding the the change of administrations from David to Solomon. There was a lot going on here at the time as David was ailing and aged, unable even to keep his body temperature up. You see that in 1 Samuel 2 going into 1 Kings chapter 1. You don't see it here. And we've talked about the fact that the chronicler is really showing David as a, a picture, a type of the coming Messiah. So there's very little of the negative that's talked about regarding David in First Chronicles, but only the positive. And so we see a quick changeover of administrations. The chronicler's concern is with the organization now of the kingdom, as David is exiting and Solomon is coming in. Specifically, he's concerned about the temple services. And everything we read tonight comes back to that, the temple itself. David was a man of great vision. He would never see the temple built, but he saw the temple. 
He is the one who drew the blueprints. He is the one who we'll see tonight received revelation from God as to exactly how the temple should look. Moses had a revelation of the tabernacle and was given that precise everything from the measurements to what was to be used and how it was to look. Same with David with the temple. He was revealed what the temple would ultimately look like. And it was David's determination that no stone be left unturned when it came to the building of the house of the Lord. Paul said over in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, To the Israelites belong the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service. So beginning in 1 Chronicles 23, David calls the Levites to temple service. He's gathered everybody together, and verse 3 tells us the Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward, and their number by census of men was 38,000. Now wait a minute. There's a census that was taken? Didn't they just get in trouble for taking a census a chapter or so ago? Wasn't there a big to-do about that? If it was a sin to number Israel before, why is it okay now? And why is it going to be okay over the next five chapters we look at tonight? So many numbers of people. Why, Why is that good now? You could probably figure this out, but in the previous situation, David numbered his military might. He was numbering to see the strength of his army. How many men, by name, could be his great fighting force? Now, David numbers the Levites for the purpose of spiritual worship. One was focused on the might of man. Now we're focusing on the might of God. Now we're focusing on the elevation, the magnification of God, which is the right place to focus. For Jerusalem... And the temple was not to be the symbol of human strength, but the center of worship in all the world around. Verse 4. Of these Levites, that is, 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And 6,000 were officers and judges, and 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 were praising the Lord, watch this, with the instruments which David made for giving praise. Now I find that fascinating. David was not only a songwriter, he was a luthier. That's a a term that's used for a guitar maker. David made instruments. He didn't just play them. This was an amazing man, a poet, an instrument craftsman, a king, a shepherd. All these things rolled into one. David was a real Renaissance man. And verse 26 going on, it tells us that David divides the Levites into divisions according to the sons of Levi. Three clans here. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The three clans of the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And then it lists them out name by name. Verses 7 through 11 talk about the sons of Gershon and their assignments. Kohath in verses 12 through 20, and Merari in verses 21 through 23. Those are the three primary divisions among the Levites. Now, there's one more subdivision. And that group comes out of the subdivision of Kohath. It comes out of the clan of Kohath, and that's the Amramites. The people of Amram. You remember that name? Who were Amram's sons? Moses. Thank you, Pastor Les. (laughs) Moses and Aaron. And so the Amramites were the chief priests, were the line of the high priests within Levi. So if you ever get confused about, well, were all the Levites priests or how that worked? No, the the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites... They were all of Levi. They had the temple service and the work and were involved in all the things related to the temple, but were not the chief priests. Only those of the line of Aaron, straight down the line, were considered for the role of high priest and the chief priest who would offer sacrifices. Verse 24, skip on down. 
picks up here and says, These were the sons of Levi according to their father's households, even the heads of the father's households, of those of them who were counted in the number of names by their census, doing the work of the service of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, from 20 years old and upward. Verse 25, For David had said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to His people, and He dwells in Jerusalem forever. Does He? I mean, does God dwell in Jerusalem forever? 1 Kings 11.36 Jerusalem is the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name, declared the Lord. 2 Chronicles 33.4 He says, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. And of all the cities in the world, if you could pick one, Jerusalem is the only one where God has a P.O. box. Where God checks His mail, as it were. It's the only earthly zip code in which the Lord said He would reside. He never said He would be anywhere else but Jerusalem, the city of His name. By the way, if you're curious, I looked it up, and the zip code for Jerusalem is 91999. I just thought you might like to know that. But in the future, nothing biblical about that, we know Jesus Himself will return. He'll rule and He will reign from Jerusalem in the kingdom age that is also called the millennium. Isaiah 24, verse 23 says, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. So great is the glory and wonder of the Lord, that even the moon on its biggest shining in the evening, or even the sun in its hottest glory, will be ashamed before the glory of Jesus when He resides there in Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 13, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will, between, will be between the two offices, that is, the office of king and the office of priest. It's even been said, when you pray from Jerusalem, it's a local call. I like that. But I want to draw your attention to another mountain, and another conversation that took place, not far from Jerusalem, in the mountain ranges of Samaria. John chapter 4, verse 20, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's kind of baiting him. She's trying to get some prophetic information from this man who she has already acknowledged as a prophet. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Roberta says she walked into this barn of all places and felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because the true worshipers don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship Jesus Christ. I encourage you to. I'd like you to. We're still really short on the numbers for our Israel trip. But you don't have to go there. Isn't it great to know that prayer from any location... In all of the world, even in all the universe, prayer anywhere is a local call when it comes to our Father. But there's more. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You see, with you, God doesn't just have a P.O. box that he checks from time to time. God resides in the heart of the believer. It is His promise. It is His guarantee. And that is an awesome, awesome truth. That's the real zip code of God. Verse 26 going on. 
Also the Levites will no longer need to carry the tabernacle and all its utensils for its service. You may recall that was their job. It's what they did in the traveling of Israel. Verse 27, For by the last words of David, the sons of Levi were numbered from 20 years old and upward. For their office is to assist the sons of Aaron, who are Levites themselves, but of Amram, to assist the sons of Aaron with the service of the house of the Lord, in the courts and in the chambers and in the purifying of all the holy things, even the work of the service of the house of God, and with the showbread and the fine flour for a grain offering and unleavened wafers, or what is baked in the pan, or what is well mixed, in all measures of volume and size. One of the priestly duties here was baking, which is cool. I mean, you know the old saying, if I knew you were coming, I would have baked a cake, right? Well, if you know Jesus is coming, bake a cake. What in the world are you talking about, Rick? Prepare for Him. Be ready for His arrival. The whole concept behind that, that little anachronism, if I knew you were coming, I'd bake a cake, is readiness. I, I wish I'd known because I would have been ready for you, excited for you, prepared for your arrival. The Levites were in the business of baking, making sure day in and day out that the showbread for the table was fresh and hot and ready to be laid out before the Lord. And there is a readiness that is inherent here. Prepare for Him. Be ready for Him. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. All ministry... All ministry, I don't care what it is, whether it's bringing flowers to someone in the hospital, or bringing a meal to somebody, or singing in worship, or cleaning up in the barn, all ministry is in fact preparation for His return. It's why we do it. It's at the heart of what we're about. So whatever you do, do it for Him with an eye to His coming. Verse 30 goes on and says, They are to stand every morning to thank and to praise the Lord, and likewise at evening. And to offer all burnt offerings to the Lord on the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the fixed festivals in the number set by the ordinance concerning them continually before the Lord. Thus they are to keep charge of the tent of meeting, and charge of the holy place, and charge of the sons of Aaron and their relatives for the service of the house of the Lord. It is all about servicing the temple. Servicing the house of the Lord. I love that verse 30 is not limited to one group. Verse 30, which tells us they are to stand every morning and thank and praise the Lord and likewise at evening. It's not limited to one group. Now we're going to get to one group that leads the worship, the musicians. They'll be talked about more in chapter 25. But all of the Levites were called to daily, morning and evening, worshiping of the Lord. And I really like how that comes off. Because the most priestly thing a person can do is worship. The holiest thing, the thing that will set you apart more than any other thing, is worship. And God called the Levites morning and evening. Start the day that way, end the day that way. Stand every morning and thank and praise the Lord. And in the evening, likewise, do the same. Psalm 65 verse 8 says, They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset for joy. And so as the dawn alights in your heart in the morning, as you wake up, the first thing to do, worship the Lord. And as you're about to drift off to sleep, when your head hits the pillow, the last thing that we should be called to do is to worship the Lord. And if we begin to do that morning and evening, I think you'll find that the sandwich gets thicker and thicker until the worship of the Lord is 24-7. Which is really what we're being led to. 
Through Him then, Hebrews 13.15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Do you begin and end the day in worship? And if not, I encourage you to do something to remind yourself. Take a 3 by 5 card and just write worship God on it. Praise Jesus and put it on your pillow. So you can't lie down at night without seeing that card. And in the morning, put it right in front of your clock. So as you go and hit the snooze button four, five, six times, you knock it off and go, oh, 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 praise Jesus. And you will begin and end the day in worship. David hired 288 professional musicians who did nothing but write worship songs and lead in the perpetual worship of the temple. And the Levitical choir, as we'll find out, was 4,000 strong. A big mama choir. They knew how to sing and they knew how to praise because the temple, David did all this because the temple was to be about perpetual worship. The worship that never stops. What must it have been like to walk through the streets of Jerusalem in the days of Solomon? You would have heard wherever you were the music of worship coming from the temple. And that's exactly how David intended it. And that's exactly how I believe the Lord enjoys it. Constant flowing worship music from the Temple Mount. Now, chapter 24 relates specifically now the priestly line of Aaron. Verse 1. Now the divisions of the descendants of Aaron were these. The sons of Aaron were Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Will you recall Nadab and Abihu? They didn't get beyond coronation day. They're the two who offered up strange fire to the Lord. They got all caught up. They got a little drunk. And they offered up strange fire before the Lord And they were immediately fried in their strange fire. That's back in Leviticus 10, an interesting story. On the day of Aaron's ordination, his sons, the two prominent sons, died. But he had two other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. tells us verse 2, Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no son. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests. David with Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar divided them according to their offices for their ministry. Since more chief men were found from the descendants of Eleazar than from the descendants of Ithamar, they divided them thus. There were sixteen heads of fathers' households of the descendants of Eleazar, and eight of the descendants of Ithamar according to their fathers' households. Thus they were divided by lot, the one as the other, for they were officers of the sanctuary and officers of God, both for the descendants of Eleazar and the descendants of Ishamar. Shemaiah, the son of Nathanael, the scribe from the Levites, recorded them in the presence of the king, the princes, Zadok the priest, Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, and the heads of the father's households of the priests and of the Levites. One father's household taken for Eleazar, and one taken for Ithamar. Now verses 7 through 18 now we'll list name by name 24 chief priests, all of the line of Aaron, who served in the temple in Jerusalem. And the chapter concludes by numbering the other sons of Amram, who were Amram's sons, but they weren't of the line of Aaron. They were of other lines, and so they're listed out there as well. Chapter 25, verse 1. Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Haman, or Heman, I like to call him, and of Jejetun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. Down in verse 7, It says their number, who were trained in the singing to the Lord with all their relatives who were skillful, was 288. These were the professionals. 
Okay, Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun, these three and all of their family, 288 people, were the temple worship leaders. They worshipped with harps, with lyres, with cymbals. They worshipped with instrumental music. And it was that constant music in the temple that would go every day. Verses 8 through 31, they give the particular divisions of all these musicians, which we won't take time to to look at tonight and to name name by name. You can do that if you'd like to go home and you, you feel like you missed something. Please feel free to go back and read every name, name by name, as we go through. But 8 through 31 talks about these. I'm just going to point out something that I think you really need to see here in verse 25. There are two purposes that these 288 temple musicians were given by David. Two primary areas of focus, and they're quite interesting. The first one is this. The music brought a message. The music brought a message. Look back at verse 2. It says, Of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, Joseph, Nethaniah, and Asherelah, the sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. Wait a minute. I thought they played music. They did. And their music brought prophecy. If you skip down to verse 3, it goes on and it says, Of Jejuthun, or Yejetun, the sons of Yejetun, Gedaliah, Zerah, Yeshiah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six, under the direction of their father Yejetun, with the harp who prophesied in giving thanks and praise in the Lord. So the music brought a message. And you may sense this and know this, even in our worship here at the bridge, the most powerful worship songs are always those that carry with them a message, and usually a prophetic one that pierces right into the heart. Now, I love praise choruses, and I love when we get those, those shorter little tunes that we sing again and again, they're just praise the Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and those are great. But the ones that really grab hold, Amazing Grace... Why is that song so anointed? Because the message is at the very heart of prophecy. That God is about grace and saving His people. A prophetic message in the music. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. Let me explain a little more what I mean by a prophetic message. Paul says the one who prophesies speaks to men for three reasons. For edification, exhortation, and consolation. That is the definition Paul gives us of biblical prophecy. In other words, it's encouragement and motivation and comfort. Encouragement, motivation, and comfort, I don't hear judgment in there. And yet, unfortunately, oftentimes in the church when prophecy is practiced, what comes off is, thus saith the Lord, you all stink. You know, thus saith the Lord, judgment. Judgment is not, at this point... A function of prophecy. Conviction may well be, absolutely conviction, that I am challenged to change the direction in which I'm headed, but not not judgment, encouragement, motivation, comfort. Biblical prophecy also, my friends, is not about fortune-telling or soothsaying. And one of the concerns I have when I look at the church today is there are churches where so-called prophecy is really no different than palm reading. That it's about finding out some answer to some question that really has nothing to do with your walk with the Lord. It really has nothing to do with faith. It's just, I want to know the future. So I'm going to go to the prophet who can tell me the future. And that's not what we see going on. The temple music was a teaching tool for edification, exhortation, and consolation for the people of Israel. It would encourage and build up. It would motivate and convict. It would comfort. And that's what the worship music did, and that's what the prophetic did in this music. I tell you all this because music 
can be and is an absolutely precious tool in receiving prophecy from the Lord. In receiving prophetic messages from God to our hearts. Music is incredibly valuable. Is it any wonder that Satan has jumped on music and made it incredibly base and awful in the world today? That he twists it another direction. I'll tell you what, music that brings the message of God, I don't care what it is, whether it has a heavy metal sound or country or pop or ancient hymns, whatever, if it's bringing the message of God, I am all for it. But music that brings the message of the world can be quite dangerous indeed. In fact, it's said that music opens up our minds and allows the message to come in. And that's what happens in worship music. It's interesting, 2 Kings 3.15, we talked about this story a few months back, a couple, well, maybe a year or so back, but Elisha, when called upon to prophesy, he says, I'll prophesy, but, but I need a minstrel. He calls for a minstrel to come to him, and the minstrel begins to play music, and when he does, the Bible says, and I quote, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Now, that's fascinating to me. It was when the music started to play. I want to encourage you again, and I have before, that when it comes to worship in the body of Christ, don't be late. Don't let the worship time... And I'm, I'm not talking about... Man, some of you are here and you just got off work and you fly to get here. Praise God you're here. Please don't feel guilty tonight because oh, I showed up halfway through... I, didn't, I don't even know who was here halfway through worship, okay? Or who just walked in the door. I'm glad you're here, Dave. I really am. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a heart that says, oh, they're just worshiping, no big deal. I'll just show up at teaching time. You are missing the prophetic power of God in your life. It is not what happens when Pastor Rick sits down and starts to give head knowledge. By the way, I hope you're not looking for head knowledge when I sit down and start to teach anyway. But you are missing an incredibly important part of the whole faith experience and growth when you skip out on worship and say, I'll just show up after that. I'll get there around time for teaching. Now the music brought the message. Second thing that the temple music did, the music brought magnification. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, All these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer, to exalt him according to the words of God, for God gave fourteen sons and three daughters to Haman. What was the reason? To exalt. To magnify God. To lift him up. The music was about exaltation, magnification. It moved people to the glory of the Lord. It lifted the heart to look at the Father. I love when that happens in our worship times. When you almost forget that there's anybody around you. When your eyes are closed, you're not even reading words because you are lifted up. You are caught up. You are, you are just tearfully blown away by the glory of the presence of God here among us. And that's what worship does. By the way, some of you have heard of Asaph. A few, are, a few have heard of, of Haman. And I would imagine even less until we got to First Chronicles had even heard of the man Yejutun. If I asked you on the street, who was Yejutun? Or Jejuthun, as written in the English. And most wouldn't know. And I mention that because it's interesting that these men and their relatives, for all their musical composition, and for the constant daily worship concerts that went on there on the Temple Mount, they reside mostly in the where are they now category of Scripture. Most Christians don't even know who they are. Asaph, wait, did he write a psalm or something? I think I saw that somewhere in my Bible. They're relative unknowns. And it's because their purpose was the magnification of God and not themselves. 
Because their lives were about lifting up the Father. And in so doing, they began to shrink into the woodwork of the temple. They came into the background. Well, what was it that Jesus said about those who flaunt? Specifically, he, he was talking about giving and prayer and fasting. Remember this, Matthew 6, 2, 5, and 16. He said they had their reward in full. There are two ways we can get rewards in this life. We can receive a reward from the Father. Jesus says, I am coming and my reward is with me. To render to every man that which he has done. So we could receive our reward from the Lord, or you can have your reward in full here on earth. And I don't want that one. Maybe I'm a little selfish, but I want the reward from Jesus. I want the one that comes from Him. I'm sorry I have to mention this. But you have no doubt been aware of the hoopla over Michael Jackson's death this last week. (laughs) Spencer goes, who? (laughs) You know, as I've watched this off and on, and and it keeps coming up to the forefront of this this most important thing, and... um, You know, the real tragedy of his life is the way our culture elevated him. The way our culture elevates human beings to pop gods. And if you think about that, most of their music doesn't elevate anything other than record sales and their egos. And in the entertainment world, I think in many cases they have their reward in full. They've gotten all they're going to get. Because the focus is so on the person. Why do we do that? What is it about humanity that causes us to elevate people to stardom? And I think the answer is simple. We have a hungry need to worship. We have something that is built in to our spirits, to who we are. We have to worship. We desire to worship. And in a culture that is less and less focused on Jesus Christ, we've got to worship something. So we're going to start picking people who have interesting dance moves or furious recording styles, or an ability to sing. David's musicians magnified the one true God. David's musicians brought musical messages from the one same God, and that's why we worship. To get our eyes off of mankind, off of any other people, and squarely and solely focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. Now chapter 26 will enumerate more servants. Uh, we see verses 8 through 31. I mentioned this, the divisions of all the musicians. We get down to chapter 26 now. And it enumerates more servants of three different areas, gatekeepers, treasurers, and then officials who serve actually outside of Jerusalem. Let's look quickly at these. The gatekeepers, verses 1 through 19. Verse 1 tells us the divisions of the gatekeepers were of the Korathites, Meshulamiah, the son of Kor, of the sons of Asaph. And it goes on and talks about all the names just listing one after another. In fact, down in verse 4, you might notice Obed-Edom was one of the gatekeepers. It was a, a peculiar honor to be a gatekeeper of the temple of the Lord. So Obed-Edom, he was the one whose house housed the Ark of the Covenant for three short months, and in that time he was blessed. In fact, it's interesting, it says, Obed-Edom had sons, Shimeiah the firstborn, Jehoshaphat the second, Joah the third, Sekar the fourth, Netanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Peulatai the eighth. God had indeed blessed him, <laughs> which I like, because he gave him all these sons. He was the one who held the ark in his home. So it goes down and lists all these different men down through verse 19, and they were the gatekeepers. Now the job of gatekeeping 
honestly doesn't sound all that exciting. Doesn't sound like a real big thrill. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd rather be one of the guys doing the sacrifice because then at least you get to slit the neck of an animal, the blood. Ugh, wouldn't that be kind of cool, you know? But the gatekeepers, they just stood at the gates. They stood watch. And they were in their rotation, and it really didn't sound like a big deal. But David said, and we sang Psalm 84.10, A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And what he's talking about is the gatekeeper. For the gatekeeper is the one who stood at the threshold of the house of God. When we sing better is one day in your courts, we are saying, man, it would be better to be a gatekeeper of the temple than to live out in the world and have all the riches and wealth and misery that comes with that. Better to be a gatekeeper. That was David's passion. Just to be near the Lord. Even if I just have to stand at the gate, I want to be as close as I can be to the Lord. Joshua was that way. Some of you may remember back in Exodus 33, verse 11, it tells us, tells us that Moses returned to the camp, but Joshua would not depart from the tent. Moses came and went to the tabernacle. Joshua stayed right there. Why? Because he wanted to be as close to the Lord as he possibly could be. And Jesus was that way. You remember when Joe and Mary lost him at the age of 12? Leaving Jerusalem after the Passover. And where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. Wasn't he with Uncle so-and-so? And I don't even... So they go back in looking for Jesus. They find him where? In the temple. And his response to them in Luke 2.49 is, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Like David before him, like Joshua before him, to be close to the Lord. We're talking about the kind of heart that says, I want to be wherever Jesus is. I want to sit where He's sitting. and I want to walk where He's walking. And I want to be so close to Him that I even hear when He whispers. I want to be so close to Jesus. I think of John at the Last Supper leaning up against Jesus' chest. I wonder, could John hear his heartbeat? That's how close. We're invited to be to Jesus. And Jesus said in John 14, verse 3, a great future promise, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And wherever He goes, that's where we're going to go. Part of the reason I've said that we follow Jesus when He returns to earth after the tribulation, when He comes in His glorious appearing, part of the reason I believe we follow Him is because of this promise that where I am, there you're going to be. He doesn't leave us stuck up in heaven while He heads down to earth to take care of things and set up His kingdom. No, we go where He goes. And we are where He is. The gatekeepers, close to the house of God. Secondly, we have the treasurers, and they're listed in verses 20 through 28. I just want to point out verse 27 among all these names of the different treasurers of the the Levites. Verse 27 says, They dedicated part of the spoil, one in battles, to repair the house of the Lord. I had never thought about that before. Any more than the first time I bought our first house that I thought about the fact that it would need repairs. The house was 40 years old. It needed repairs immediately. And now as a homeowner, and those of you who are homeowners, you get that. You don't just buy a house and that's it. Pay your mortgage and you're good to go. No. There is constant, constant upkeep, constant repair. And you've got to start to plan for it because it's going to hit you right when you don't expect it. The septic drain field begins to seep. And you've got to fix that as quick as possible. Or something else goes wrong. And so these treasurers took part of the spoil. They set it aside for repair in the house of 
of the Lord. Gang, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. In verse 22, he says, We are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And if that's the case, if we are a temple of the Lord, spiritually speaking, then I think we are being called upon to be dedicated to future restoration. We as a church are being called upon to prepare now for hearts that need to be restored later. To set aside some of the treasure that Jesus has given us to care for those who need care in the future. We need to expect in this church body there will be breakdowns. We need to assume there will be problems. We need to assume sometimes things are going to stink. And in that assumption, be ready when the day comes to restore. Because as believers in Christ, that's what we're called to. A ministry of reconciliation, of restoration. And it's not just seeing those outside of the body of Christ who have yet to believe in Jesus. It's not just about restoring them to a relationship with Jesus. It's about restoring our own relationships. One to another in the body of Christ. We need to predict the challenges that come with an aging house. Do you realize this October 2009 is six years of the Bridge Christian Fellowship being here? I can't. I couldn't believe that. I, I counted up. Six years. It seems like it's been like that. We are beginning to age a little bit. Now, I think we have some great challenges ahead. Some great changes are going to come. And as long as the Lord tarries, we're going to be here doing what He's called us to do. But gang, we need to pray that we remain dedicated to restoration. That that be primary among us. That needs to be at the heart of this church. So the treasurer set apart some of the spoils to repair the house of the Lord. And further on down in Scripture, we see some of those rep, uh, reparations actually happening. Now down in verse 29 through verse 32, we have a listing of the outside officers. The outside officers. As for the Israelites, Hananiah, or Hananiah and his sons were assigned to outside duties for Israel as officers and judges. As for the Hebronites, Hashaviah and his relatives, 1,700 capable men, they had charge of the affairs of Israel west of the Jordan for all of the work of the Lord and the service of the king. As for the Hebronites, Jerijah, the chief, these Hebronites were investigated according to their genealogies and fathers' households in the 40th year of David's reign. It was right before David's death. And men of outstanding capability were found among them at Hatzer of Gilead. And his relatives, capable men, were 2,700 in number, heads of fathers' households, and King David made them overseers of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites concerning all the affairs of God and of the king. And I, I pause just to point out these outside officers. These are the guys who worked in Israel, in the kingdom, outside of Jerusalem itself. Beyond Jerusalem proper, specifically even those who cared for the people on the other side of the Jordan. The people on the fringe. Those who were the outsiders. You see, David made sure nobody in the kingdom was forgotten. No aspect of what was Israel of the day in the day would be forgotten. That there would be care to every inch of the land and every person in the land, even those on the fringe. And in keeping with the heart of restoration, Paul says in Romans 14, verse 1, accept the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So if I'm accepting the one who's weak in his faith, but not for judgment, why am I accepting him? For love, for restoration for encouragement, for the building up of the body of Christ. 
You're going to find at any given point in your Christian walk there are people more mature than you are in their faith. Pray that that maturity is reflected in how they love you. You're also going to find at any given point in your Christian life those who are immature in their faith. I have conversations from time to time with people, and none of you, but but I'm just being absolutely honest. The thought will race through my mind, I can't even believe what I'm hearing. You're saying something here, and I'm going, are you kidding me? I I can't even believe we're talking about this. This is something, we covered this like chapters ago, I know. And you're still confused. And then the Lord stops me. And he says, you know, in this particular area, they don't understand something you do. So what is to be your response? Arrogance? Pride because I know what they don't? According to Paul, no. My attitude is one of acceptance. Caring for those who, from my perspective, are on the fringe. And you know what's amazing? Those who are on the fringe in one area tend to be much closer to the Lord than I am in other areas. And so where I'm weak, I need you to help me. And where you are weak, I am called to help you. And we walk together as one body, the entirety of the church, just as David was concerned for all of Israel. Now chapter 27. See how we're just moving along here? It's great. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 15, detail 12 commanders. I'm just going to name them for you. In verse 2, there's Yashabim. In verse 4, Dodai. In verse 5, Benaiah. And uh, this Benaiah was one of the mighty men of the 30, verse 6 tells us. Now in verse 7, Asahel. In verse 8, Shamhut. In verse 9, Ira. Which is just a great name, a great Jewish name, Ira. Then we have in verse 10, Helez. And in verse 11, Sibachai, the Huchathite. Remember Sibachai was one who killed a giant? And then we have in verse 12, Abiezer. Verse 13, Maharai. Verse 14, Benaiah. And in verse 15, Heldai. And these 12 guys were commanders. These are commanders of the army. Now this is interesting, and hold this thought for a second. These commanders had charge of 24,000 men, whose names we do not have listed, thankfully. So 24,000 men were in turn divided into groups of thousands, and then groups of hundreds. And there was a great organization to the military machine that is Israel. But all we get... Of that organization, in First Chronicles, the only list we get is of the 12 primary commanders, and nobody else is listed. Nobody else is numbered. Why is that? I'll tell you in just a moment. In Israel today, it's interesting to note, and especially you in the front row need to hear this. Every Israeli citizen, when they hit age 18, immediately go into the Israeli Defense Force. Men serve two years. It's compulsory. You have no choice. You graduate high school, you go to the army. Men serve two years, women serve one year, and after that, every single year, the men are required one full month of service per year. The rest of their lives. Our bus driver, Judah, was his name, Judah, was just back from having driven tanks in the recent war up against Hezbollah, and now he was driving our bus for a tour group, and I felt safe, I can tell you. That guy knew how to drive a bus. But he had just served a month. And this, he was, how old would you say Yuda was? Spencer? 50, maybe? Late 40s, early 50s, still serving his month. 
Because that's the organization there in Israel. The women uh, don't serve one month out of every year, but every few years they're required to come back and serve their time continually in the army as well. The whole nation of Israel at any given time can be mobilized if need be, which is why Israel is such a force to be reckoned with in the Middle East. Because everyone's in. And everyone has a stake in what's going on in the protection of the nation. And we kind of get a sense of that back here with David. That everybody was organized and there had their, their thousands and their, and their hundreds. And then in verse 16, it tells us of the chief officers of the tribes. And that means the twelve tribes. So each tribe had an officer or a prince. For the Reubenites, verse 16, it was Eliezer, the son of Zechri. For the Simeonites, it was Shephatiah, the son of Maacah. For Levi, it was Hashabiah, the son of Kemuel. For Aaron, Zadok. For Judah, Elihu was one of David's brothers. For Issachar, Omri, the son of Michael. For Zebulun, Ishmaeliah, the son of Obadiah. For Naphtali, Jerimoth, the son of Azrael. For the sons of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Azariah. For the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joel, the son of Pediah. And for the half-tribe of Manasseh, Edo, the son of Zechariah. For Benjamin, Yasiel, or Yaasiel, the son of Abner. For Dan, Azarel, the son of Jehoram. These were the princes of the tribes of Israel. So 12 tribes, 12 princes. Actually, if you add the half-tribe of Manasseh was divided up, so there'd be all, each tribe had their own prince there in Israel. Just a prince of, of a group of guys there. But verse 23 tells us that David did not count those 20 years of age and under. Because the Lord had said he would multiply Israel as the stars of heaven. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, had begun to count them, but did not finish. And because of this, the wrath came upon Israel, and the number was not included in the account of the chronicles of King David. Now, you you know this story, and it's interesting to me, that here is mentioned in this interesting little epilogue of the commanders. Note the commanders, all we get is 12 of them. And as I said before, we don't get every name of every military person, because... Though David began that census, he never finished it because God got angry about it. So all we have here in Scripture is just the 12 primary commanders, and that's it, because the actual counting of names was immediately stopped. And also we see David counted only those 20 and up because the Lord promised Israel would be plenteous. In other words, under 20 and down, there's plenty of people coming in to fill the ranks of the military might, the Lord would say, David, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to pay attention to that. Now, verse 25 goes into various overseers. Now, this is personal, though. These are overseers of all the things that belong specifically to David. Asmaveth, the son of Adiel, had charge of the king's storehouses. And skip on down. Verse 26 tells about Ezri, who was in charge of the agricultural workers who tilled the soil. And Shimei was in charge of the vineyards, verse 27, and in charge of the produce of the vineyards. Verse 28 says, Baal Hanan, he was in charge of the olive and sycamore trees. And Yoash uh, was in charge of the stores of oil. Shetri, the Sharonite, had a charge of the cattle who were grazing in the Sharon. And Shaphat, the son of Adlai, had charge of the cattle in the valleys. Verse 30 says, Obil was in charge of the camels. Uh, Yediah was in charge of the donkeys. Haziz was in charge of all the flocks. And it tells us in verse 31, all these were overseers of the property which belonged not to Israel, but to David. These were all David's overseers. David, gang, his riches were absolutely stunning. As we talked about Sunday, 
In chapter 29, what he gave to the temple alone in the billions. Absolutely stunning. And David had to have some organization just to take care of all these things that belonged to him. By the way, Solomon's wealth would far surpass it. Because God promised to bless this son of David. Now in verse 32, ending out chapter 27, it says, Also Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor, man of understanding. And he was a scribe. Yahiel, the son of Hachmoni, tutored the king's sons. Ahithophel was counselor to the king, and Hushai the archite was the king's friend. Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah, and Abiathar succeeded Ahithophel, and Joab was the commander of the king's army. So some important men there listed, probably more in David's cabinet, some of these insiders. But there's one particular name of note in these last few verses of chapter 27. Hushai. Hushai the archite. What was his role in the cabinet of King David? He was a friend. (laughs) I love that. What do you do in the king's circle, Hushai? I'm his friend. You know, we hang out together. We shoot hoops, play video games. You know, we just do our thing. Me and the king. You know, we're bros. We enjoy time together. This is interesting to me. That this position would be listed among the high counselors of David. Even men like Joab, the commander, and Jonathan, the counselor, all these other guys. But Hushai the archite was the king's friend. The Hebrew word for friend is Rhea. That's the name of Aaron and Kelly Shalesky's dog. <laughs> Which makes sense because dog is man's best friend. And so Rhea, actually their name is Rhea Sunshine. That's their dog's name. Rhea is the word, and literally in the Hebrew, Rhea means intimate companion. That was Hushai. His job was not to be a scribe, was not to keep track of things, to command the army. His job was to be a friend. A friend to David. You know, the truth is, many of us have lots of acquaintances, but few really true friends. When you really boil it down, most of us, when we talk about who is the person you can count on to have your back, the person who you can share anything with, the person who, even though they find out the worst about you, will be there for you, how many people in your life do you know like that? And truthfully, it's probably one or two. Lots of acquaintances, and that's okay. In fact, when it comes to loving the body and loving the church, we are to love each other even in an acquaintance, acquaintance mode. We're never going to all know each other like we'd like to, at least until the kingdom comes, and we're no longer bound by these bodies, and there will be a, I think, an intimacy at that time that will amaze us. But for now, you're my best friend in the world is Cheryl. I've got a couple of guys who are my closest friends in the world. And I've had to, as a pastor allow myself that privilege because without it without it David would have been a hurting man he needed friends he needed a certain number of guys who could really hang with and really talk to and really trust an intimate companion Proverbs 18.24 says a man of too many friends comes to ruin what does that mean? well it means someone who's trying to be a friend to everybody someone who wants the approval of all people someone who's out there trying to make sure everybody's happy is going to come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We saw this before with David and a young man named Jonathan. We see it now with Hushai, someone who is an intimate companion of the king. Let me ask you this. Are you the king's intimate companion? 
Let me ruffle Jim's feathers for a moment. Do you walk in friendship with Jesus? Is that possible? To be a friend of Jesus Christ? Do you, can you call Jesus an intimate companion? Well, Jesus said in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all the things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you, because a friend will tell you everything. And Jesus has told us everything. What a friend we have in Jesus. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king and the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the kings and his sons. He gathers them with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. And then King David rose to his feet and he said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it, David says. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. I love just the honesty of David. He could have skipped over this. He could have said, I was going to build a house, but I'm getting old and a little tired. I'm going to leave that to my son. You know, it's more of a... You know, it's more of his work. I'm just going to get everything right. He doesn't. He goes right to the heart of it. God won't let me build the temple. I wanted to. I'm not allowed because I was a warrior king. I shed blood. Yet, he says, the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me. To make me king over all Israel. I don't believe David is saying this in a puffed up prideful way. Not at this point in his life. I think he's just blown away. Every time he thinks about the fact that he as a shepherd is now king. And his reign now for 40 years as king. David just goes, man. That's amazing. Praise God. He chose me. Verse 6. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts. I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him, and I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now, which Solomon would not do. Does that mean the kingdom would fall? Yeah. Does that mean the kingdom, the, the, the eternal kingdom would no longer be? No. Because God's covenant was with David for an eternal kingdom that would be everlasting. So now, verse 8, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land, and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. I had a great conversation, and I love how Bible study and, and teaching times stir up thoughts and thinking. And I had a great conversation a couple weeks back about the dichotomy between David as king and Solomon as king. Both David and Solomon are representatives, types, if you will, of the Messiah. David, a type of who would come after him, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Solomon is, too, a type of the one who would come after him. They both portray aspects of the one we could call Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David. David portrays the warrior king. Solomon portrays the peaceful king. Both are pictures. 
Jesus is so absolutely amazing, gang, that you cannot sum him up with one man. You can't say, oh, he's just like David. No, in some ways, David typifies Jesus. You can't say, oh, he's just like Solomon. Well, in some ways, Solomon typifies Jesus. But you really need both to get the full picture of the royal reign of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, His name will be called Prince of Peace. Among other names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Solomon, Shlomo, Peaceful One, the King of Peace. And in his days, Israel had peace. A picture of the eternal, of the millennial kingdom to come. And the peaceful reign of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 10.34, Don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And we talked about this when we studied Matthew. This is not a contradiction. It's two sides of the same coin. When we studied Matthew, I said we have to consider it this way. We have to differentiate between the response and the result. The response to Jesus and the result of Jesus' return. You see, Jesus knew peace would not be the response to His first coming, and it wasn't. He was murdered for it. He knew that wouldn't be the immediate response, but He knew the result of His first coming would be ultimate peace. The peace of God, Paul writes, Philippians 4.7, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the result of His coming the first time, of His dying, of His resurrection, and of your faith in Him that you can have perfect peace. It's not even explainable in our world. In His second coming, once again, peace will not be the response. In fact, what happens, and it's just an amazing scenario, but all the armies of the world, Daniel 10, 11, 12, tell us all the armies of the world are gathered in one place, Armageddon, and they're battling it out, and at this point they have all turned against Antichrist. And they're all in this massive engagement because they realize he's, he's a, a farce. And suddenly the Son of Man appears in the sky. Jesus appears coming back. You know what the armies of the world do? They all join forces, turn and begin firing at Jesus. And Jesus, with the breath of His mouth, puts them down like that. The Bible tells us in Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. David was a warrior king. Jesus is a warrior king with perfect and ultimate justice in his hands. Solomon was a king of peace. Jesus is the king of peace who will bring perfect peace. The response to his coming will be war. The result of his coming will be peace. And so in both David and Solomon, we have this picture of Jesus Christ, which is pretty stunning. Now what David says next, he turns to Solomon, he says something that needs to be fully grasped by us in verse 9. He says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Watch this. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek Him, He'll let you find Him. But if you forsake Him, He will reject you forever. That phrase, every intent of the thoughts, man, that is mind-boggling. God reads motives. He knows what you think before you think it. Before the thought arrives, He already knows what's coming. Before you have any awareness or conscious understanding of what you're thinking in your head, that's a little frightening. I can't even have a motive hidden from God. He knows already before it enters my own brain. Psalm 139, 
Verse 1 says, O Lord, you search me and know me. You know when I sit down and I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. That is before an idea even pops into my tiny little pea brain, God has already heard it. God already knows it's coming. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And that can bring two reactions from people. It can bring great concern or it can bring great comfort. Great concern if I'm trying to hide something from Jesus. Because He knows what I'm trying to hide even before I tried to hide it. He knows the evil intent before the evil even entered my brain. He's like, oh, Rick's about to. And then it enters my brain and off I go. He knew before I thought of it. Now from a sinner's standpoint outside of the blood of Jesus, that's a concern. You can't hide from God. And all my sin is there. And man, I can hide it from you. I cannot hide it from the Lord. But you know, as a believer in Jesus, as a child of God, I don't know of anything that brings greater comfort because I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to pretend like I really have it all together. I don't have to pretend like I'm the perfect this or the ultimate that or or the the cleaned up, presentable dude. I, I don't have to do that with Jesus. He knows before I know what I'm going to be thinking. And that to me is a great comfort. Well, verse 10, David says, Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. Then David gave his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple. It's buildings, storehouses, upper rooms, inner rooms, the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and for all the surrounding rooms for the storehouses of the house of God and for the storehouses of the dedicated things. Also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites and all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, all the utensils of service in the house of the Lord, verse 14, the gold utensils and the silver utensils going on there. Verse 15, the weight of the gold for the golden lampstands and their golden lamps. By the way, there's one golden lampstand there in the tabernacle. There would be 12 lampstands in the temple. One table of showbread in the tabernacle, twelve tables of showbread in the temple. What was magnificent in the tabernacle is now expanded in its glory and magnificence in Solomon's temple, in David's temple, in the temple of the Lord. It says, The weight of each lampstand and its lamps, the weight of silver for the silver lampstands, the weight of each lampstand and its lamps according to the use of each lampstand. Verse 16, And the gold by weight for the tables of showbread for each table, and silver for the silver tables, and the forks, the bases, the pitchers of pure gold, and for the golden bowls and the weight of each bowl, and for the silver bowls and the weight of each bowl, and for the altar of incense refined by gold, refined gold by weight, and, watch this, gold for the model of the chariot. And that word chariot is right, the model of the chariot. Even the cherubim that, that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this, David said, the Lord made me understand in writing by His hand upon me all the details of this pattern. And as I said before, in the same way the Lord revealed the blueprints of the tabernacle to Moses, He now revealed the blueprints of the temple. This temple was God's design. And we're going to talk more about the way it looked in the inner courts and outer courts and the implements. We'll get to all that stuff in future studies. But I want to explain just one thing here, and that's this whole chariot business. Verse 18, 
Gold for the model of the chariot, even the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. I don't recall ever seeing a chariot as part of the furniture in the tabernacle. If you go back to Exodus 25, verse 22, it says, the Lord says, I will meet with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. It doesn't say from between the two cherubim riding on the golden chariots on top of the ark. It just says the two cherubim. So what's going on here? Are we building a new ark? Are we adding something to it? What is this chariot business all about? The simple answer, gang, is the cherubim are the chariot. That's what is being referred to here. And it's a grand picture. In David's choice of this word, and it was an understanding, I believe, that the Jewish people had of the glory of God. The cherubim are the chariot of God. Psalm 18.10 tells us, He rode upon a cherub and flew. He sped upon the wings of the wind. Psalm 99 verse 1 says, He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Now, if you've studied Ezekiel at all, or went through our Revelation study, you have a sense of what the cherubim looked like, and they would have freaked you out. We would fall trembling at the sight of these four-faced, many-winged, with eyeballs all over the wings creatures that Ezekiel saw and described and that John saw and described. Amazing, angelic beings of the highest degree. And they are chariots to God. And He rides upon the cherubim. In Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel chapter 1, he saw the Lord riding above the cherubim. You may recall if you've read Ezekiel, there were great wheels described that were beneath. And it's a chariot picture that the Lord is enthroned above. It's an awesome picture. Cherubim on the mercy seat with the Lord riding, not in the ark, not sitting on top of the gold of the ark, but riding above the cherubim on the ark in glory and splendor and might. And that's what we're talking about there, the chariot of the cherubim. In verse 20, David then said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous, and act. Do not fear or be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you, until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And that doesn't mean He's going to fail him at that time either. It just means God is with you, Solomon, Do the work. Build this temple. Don't falter. Don't be afraid. Stick to it. Be brave. Get it done. Now behold, verse 21, there are the divisions of the priests and of the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And every willing man of any skill will be with you in all the work for all kinds of service. The officials also and all the people will be entirely at your command. Now, you know from Sunday, chapter 29, we got down as far as about halfway through 22, and we know at this point David now stands up before the people. And he says, All right, it's offering time. A cheerful giver, David was, and he gave massive amounts, again, that we covered in depth on Sunday, and the people responded, and they gave openly and gloriously and joyfully, and it was a wonderful day, and at the end of the day, it tells us on the next day, verse 21 of chapter 29, they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank that day before the Lord with great gladness, and that's just an awesome chapter. Of all the joy that that ends up at this great speech of David. And after this, we finally come to the end of David's life. 
This great speech, setting up, everything is ready to go for the temple. The blueprints, all the implements, set for the temple of the Lord. And they made Solomon, the son of David, king a second time. (laughs) They had already anointed him once, they had to anoint him twice as ruler for the Lord and Zadok as the priest. Now, we are told here, we understand that Zadok becomes the high priest, the first high priest of the actual temple of Solomon. And then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father, and he prospered. And all Israel obeyed him. All the officials, the mighty men, also the sons of King David, pledged allegiance to King Solomon. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal majesty which had not been on any king before him in Israel. And gang, that little section there is like a prologue to Second Chronicles. Because beginning in Second Chronicles, we pick up with Solomon and the magnificence of his kingdom. Don't forget, Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here among you. For as great as Solomon was as king, as great as the peace and as great as the wealth and the grandeur and the splendor of Solomon, Jesus Christ is far greater still. Verse 26. Now David the son of Jesse reigned over all Israel. The period which he reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned in Hebron 7 years and in Jerusalem 33 years. And then he died in a ripe old age full of days, riches and honor. And his son Solomon reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, in the chronicles of Gad the seer, with all his reign, his power, and the circumstances which came on him, on Israel, and on all the kingdoms of the lands. We're reminded as the chapter ends out that David reigned for 40 years, seven in Hebron, and then 33 in Jerusalem, and that he died, and I love this phrase, in a ripe old age, but in the Hebrew it's Tob Sebah. Tob Sebah. He died with a good gray head. You know, a full head of good gray hair, and as far as we know, the son of David never had a gray hair. Because he died not after 33 years of rule in Jerusalem, but after 33 years, period. He died just outside of Jerusalem. But in that death, in that subsequent resurrection, Jesus secured the promise of the kingdom of David, the eternal kingdom that would never fail. And in his post-resurrection appearance to John, Jesus calls himself, and we'll end on this, Revelation 3, 7, he called himself he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. That is the key to the eternal kingdom.